Welcome to the Engineering Career Conversations. I'm Krista Downey, Director of the Engineering Career Center at Cornell University. And I'm Tracy Nathans-Kelly, Director of the Engineering Communications Program. We are excited to bring you this forum where we will host lively conversations that we hope will inspire you. We're happy to share today's conversation with Nathan Gabor. Nathan, who currently works at Nike, is an experienced product leader in the computer software industry, skilled in computer-aided design, biomechanics, surface modeling, and product design. Nathan's career launched with a Bachelor of Science focused in biomechanical engineering from Cornell University, class of 2013. Welcome, Nathan. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Nathan, let's start by having you tell us a little bit about your current work. Yeah. Uh, so... Right now, I work at Nike uh, within the innovation department called NXT. And NXT is a group of sort of innovators that Nike sort of created that allows us to sort of build the future of sport. Uh, it's actually a really cool place to, to see such an investment in innovation, unlike other apparel uh, companies. Nike really wants to keep setting itself as a, as a leader in the industry. And so I work in a department that's called NXT Digital uh, because innovation existed before computers at Nike. So I help lead a more digital wave uh, focusing on machine learning and product creation. And so I uh, use avatars and bodies to enable people to design uh, and use a large set of data to allow us to understand all the different shapes and poses human have. I think that that is really fascinating. Uh, what then? What what does your day look like then? I can I can imagine I'm imagining all kinds of things, but I want to know what is actually true. <laughs> yeah, you know. So um, I'm a director now, so I kind of do a lot of different things. Uh, you know, when I worked at a startup, I wore a lot of hats, and now as a director, I wear a lot of hats, uh, different hats though. And so uh, part of my job is you know solving hard problems, uh, really looking at what we can do with the data sets that we've collected over the last couple of years at Nike and what are ways that we can create better product using that. And so that's sort of, you know, where I use my engineering skills to, to solve these sort of bigger problems. Like what does a new sizing system look like or what uh, are, are better ways to approach sizing across, you know, the industry. Uh, and then other parts of my job are really educating people. Uh, people don't necessarily know what machine learning means uh, in and outside of Nike. Uh, other things in terms of helping people understand the use cases and applications of the technology that we create, uh, and then building the tools to do that. And so I also manage a group of engineers that also then are building the tools and capabilities that are you know going to create UIs and uh, interfaces for people to actually do the work themselves uh, so that they can use all the data that we've collected. So with, with that in mind, I have a follow-up question. Um, I quite often am talking to my undergraduates about using avatars or uh, case histories, right, whether they're real or uh, fictional in order to get our heads around a, a problem, right, or a circumstance. How do you develop those in-house um, and then deploy them so you can help make a better product? Yeah, so... Uh... Ironically enough, I, I kind of worked for the company that helped create a standard for this. Uh, so my uh, third job out of uh, Cornell was at a company called Body Labs, uh, and they were a company that really focused on understanding human shape and pose. 
uh, when I was at my first job, uh, I was trying to make insoles uh, for people's shoes and, you know, was doing that using CAD and, and designing. And I longed for a foot to put in my CAD system so that I can actually, you know, design the perfect insole. Uh, but getting that foot was quite hard. Scanning uh, technology is still at a place where it's pretty basic. You're you're capturing a bunch of data and you're creating a point cloud and it's just a bunch of literal points in an XYZ plane. Uh, and Body Labs took those point clouds and uh, were able to actually give you shapes uh, of humans. And so it's a statistical model uh, that creates a really unified mesh. Uh, it's using a research paper called Simple, which is a single multi-layered uh, person uh, model. And it basically looks at the variables that can understand shape and pose as separate components uh, using thousands of data points of humans being scanned and then creates an equation that sort of solves those that then creates a template uh, that then when anyone gets scanned, it fits the point cloud as best as possible. Uh, you can imagine it like a, a human shaped balloon that's being pumped to fit all the point clouds as possible. And then you have this wonderful unified mesh that you can import into any CAD system. You can analyze, you can predict um, and use it across all sorts of different points of product creation. Fascinating. Yeah. I don't think I'm going to get over the idea of of pumping up a, a human form. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you for that. It, the yeah. visual helps, right? It, yeah, it yeah. starts to it's, make more sense. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we, we had to really think about different ways of explaining the technology because, you know, explaining a, a Gaussian equation to non-engineers is uh, difficult. <laughs> uh, I, I tell a lot of people, my, my job is helping uh, create multivariable calculus in an approachable way to people who have uh, only taken algebra. Uh, you know, I work with designers and I work with people who make patterns and clothes and they really have not taken, you know, multivariable calculus. And so they don't understand surface geometries. They don't understand Gaussian equations. And so a lot of my job is, is trying to to create these sort of analogies that help take complicated things that we do in math and and really get it to be in an approachable way that other people can understand. Already today, you're doing a good job. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm envisioning this. I'm thinking about this and thinking about how many students have an interest in product design. And I'm curious if you could go back and tell us more about your path of how you got to where you are today. Out of Cornell, you know, I, I was an independent major, uh, so I kind of was already taking a path uh, off the the sort of course that, you know, everyone can can normally take. And uh, with that, I kind of saw a future of really wanting to be a designer. And uh, but I, I kind of knew the traditional sense of, you know, engineering is, is a place where you start off as a test engineer. You're going to learn something, you're going to make the perfect screw or fixture for, for 10 years. And then after those 10 years, you can, you can start designing. Uh, and so I kind of, you know, didn't want to do that. And so uh, I, you know, started off uh, at HSS uh, right out of college and I was doing an uh, internship there, uh, building tooling for uh, measuring MCL uh circumferences to, to get surface areas. And I was like, this is really cool. This is part one of really understanding ligaments. Uh, I, I understood the value, but I also recognized that I was 
really not designing. And so uh, I was adamant to search for something different. And, and that's where, you know, startup land really helped, where I found the ability to find people who were willing to really iterate quickly and, and, and test things and have a problem that I felt confident I could solve. And uh, that led to me uh, helping start the company Souls. And so we were a startup that was founded in 2013 uh, that 3D printed custom insoles for your shoes. And so uh, it solved a lot of things in, in, in me not knowing how to make things per se, the way that a test engineer would because it's 3D printing. And I did learn a lot about 3D printing, though, and how it works and what to do with it. But I also got to design a product uh, using my biomechanics and using my CAD experience uh, that really have kind of become foundational in how I think and what ways I, I look at product creation uh, using the lens of, of mechanical engineering, where the, the industry is kind of segmented into industrial designers and mechanical engineers. And sometimes they talk to each other and sometimes they don't. Uh, whereas I see this sort of combination really working harmoniously uh, to create product that not only looks good, but performs. Nathan, as you know, I help teach engineering communication within the College of Engineering. And something that you said a couple minutes ago really intrigued me about how you have to daily explain things from one set of folks who are experts over here to another set of experts who are over there. So that's a communication skill, right? How do you maneuver that? How do you know what the right moves are? Or um, or tell a story about when you made a mistake and were able to correct it, anything that strikes your fancy. I'm just interested. Yeah, um, totally. You know, my, my job as translator has uh, gone from, you know, technical to technical uh, to technical to business. And I think the, the way my career path has built it has, you know, helped me gain the skills to do that. And, you know, when I was at Souls, I, I transitioned from being, you know, an engineer to being more of a product manager, where I was taking the sort of requirements of what we were doing in CAD and being able to tell a, a CAD engineer, hey, I need these features. Like, I, I you know, I, I'm creating a surface offset. And so here's what a surface offset does. I need you to build it. Uh, and that started to create a framework of understanding, you know, needs and requirements, and then being able to articulate them to someone to to, to build this thing, um, which inherently felt like an easy thing to do as an engineer, because we know how to build things. Uh, as things, you know, progressed, you know, I, I went to Body Labs, and that's where I was a full-time product manager. And I was then stuck with this sort of like, you know, big topic of statistical modeling, machine learning, and really trying to wrap my head around it. Uh, you know, I, I was not a computer science major. I was a mechanical engineer. And so I, you know, spent as much as I could to learn, you know, the the work and, and you know, I dug up my old math books and, and tried to understand these equations again, because it had been a couple of years. Uh, but it was sort of like one trying to gain a, a internal narrative of what the object is or what I'm trying to give and then being able to just explain it without, you know, terms that people don't know. Uh, and and sorry, taking a, a hard concept and trying to explain it with terms that people do know. Uh, I, you know, saying the word Gaussian, you know, there's an assumption there that someone even knows what that is. Uh, and, you know, it, it takes an iterative approach to kind of distill 
what words are, are sort of focused in engineering and what words aren't. And, you know, a human-shaped balloon is, is something everyone can kind of imagine, uh, whereas a statistical model and, and using, you know, complicated words that are focused in, in engineering become a lot more confusing. Uh, you also pick up, you know, vis visual cues where, you know, you can definitely, as you talk to someone, uh, recognize that if your technical words are are too technical, you you kind of see this overwhelmed face or, you know, this like, this person is clearly getting overwhelmed with my, my words. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then that kind of has a moment for me to reassess, like, okay, how how far back can I do, the, you know, how far up do I need to bubble this up? And and saying less while saying more, you know, is is kind of the mantra, you know, people say, which is, you know, try to get this to a sort of level of competence that, you know, are still not diluting the work in, into something that's wrong, but also is in a way that people, you know, meets them where they are. Uh, and asking questions, you know, I'm one to always just say like, that makes sense. And it's not like a, a ego thing for me to say that I didn't make sense and I failed. It's just, again, it's this translation. And so making sure that when you present things, it's a conversation, it's not a report. It's like, here it is. This is what it is. Uh, it, it's really sort of this dynamic thing that really requires feedback and, and honesty and a little vulnerability from both ends, you know, recognizing where you are in your communication skills and where that person is, and just really getting to that common goal of, of understanding each other. I'm kind of over here in this, in this recording booth cheering, because it's nice to um, talk to somebody who's out there doing the engineering work, but is still using some of the same vocabulary to try to explain that communication structure translation, distilling your ideas, right? Like all of those things that you were, you were just mentioning, even the vulnerability like to self-correct or ask yeah. for input. It's really an important point. Um, I was excited earlier too, when you started to talk about having your, your, uh, the mesh come together, right? When you're, when you're designing something, because I've been able to work with some professors in several classes where getting to mesh convergence, this is all we care about, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then we have to write up the report about it uh, along the yeah. way so others can use the work. So Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it's, uh, you know, it's also, uh, you know, monetarily uh, incentivized for you to be good at that. Uh, you know, when you look at the industry, uh, money isn't everything, but like you are rewarded uh, for being someone that can translate things well. Uh, you know, the product industry is, uh, you know, vast, but also like highly paid. And, you know, it really does create a ladder for career growth where, you know, you go from being an engineer to being someone who, you know, writes what engineers do. Uh, and that gives you, a, you know, a much higher robust level of control. You're, you're thinking in a much bigger picture. And at the same time, you're gaining trust within your colleagues and the other parts of the business that need to exist to create, you know, said product or innovation. And, you know, the better you do that, the more people are like, wow, you, you, you really should be able to do more of this because you're, you're really getting this company to work together. Um, and that's one of the hardest things to do, actually, you know, building the product is, is hard. Uh, but engineers can do that. People get that. It's it's the getting all the pieces to connect that really is the the powerhouse that someone can be. Uh, and so, 
the more you do it, the, the, the more you're going to get recognized for it. Yeah. An engineering colleague of mine always says, engineering's easy. It's the people that are hard. <laughs> right? Yes. Fortunately and unfortunately. <laughs> right. They're complicated, messy, wonderful things. People yeah. are. Uh, so I want to take this idea of growing from being an individual contributor and, and like, you know, you're now doing these magnificent things across technical groups, across development business groups. Um, and let's let's take the lens a little bit wider here. We wanted to, we always like to ask folks who join us, how does your work contribute to a healthier, equitable, or more sustainable world? So how do you see this all fitting in? My my sort of work has always sort of been towards being an engineer uh, or being a product person and, and trying to create something that improves, you know, the world or, or improves humanity. And that's, you know, very opaque. What does that mean? And what application? Uh, but then with each step of my career, I kind of made decisions that allowed me to to have a more clear mind towards that. And so, you know, I wrote my major as biomechanics because, you know, as a as a 20 year old or 19 year old, when I wrote it, I was like, this is the closest thing to engineering and humans. You know, that's logical. So I want to do stuff for humans. I'm going to do biomechanics. Um, and then as I grew, I had more context to realize, you know, biomechanics is one aspect, but there are other ways of applying this to ensure that you're creating something better. Uh, and with souls, you know, I really wanted to look at the orthotic industry and see like there here, here are a couple of issues, you know, like orthotics are, are not precise. And so you're you're at the whim of someone as an artisan making something. They're they're really expensive. Um, and they, you know, are hard to replace. And I was like, let's let's solve these things. Uh, I would love for people who can't afford orthotics today to afford them. Um, I also wanted to create a place where they didn't depend on orthotics to exist. What, what if we could create an Invisalign for orthotics where we built your arch up and then slowly weaned you off and then now you, you don't need a device to actually you know, be aligned, but rather we've helped your muscles recover and, and train you to build the muscles to support yourself. Uh, and so it's really thinking about, you know, what are the the problems in this world that exist? And then like, what are the ways that, you know, what you're working on can solve them? Um, with with avatars, like the, the thought process is really giving more data and more, you know, information to a designer. You know, today, when you think about how things are designed, you know, we, we follow these kind of rules of ergonomics that are ancient at this time. You know, they, they haven't been updated for a while. Uh, and to, to be frank, they're, you know, they're based on, you know, an average white male person. Uh, and that, you know, creates a level of assumptions that, you know, the rest of the non-white male world uh, has to deal with. And there's no, uh, you know, oh, this was incorrectly done. It's like, that's the data that they had. You know, most of the ergonomic data that existed in the world is, is based on army data and based on like military data. And that's, you know, who the majority of the military were. And now, you know, we have more data. And so the work I do now really looks at, you know, how do we ensure that we can create this world of giving people all the data so that they're designing more inclusively and also recognizing, you know, where are the places that people need products specifically to cater towards a demographic, whether it is a race or an age or a, a disability and, and, how do we then create the data that allows you to solve those problems? 
One of my favorite things is to explore the complexity of the data collection that then right, puts forward design decisions, no matter what they are. And so I'm really glad that you were able to hit upon that. It's, it's one of my f- current favorite topics. <laughs> it, it, it's been an interesting uh, development in my career, especially that I've you know started to become more of an expert in machine learning to start to see all the sort of ethics and, and data sort of vigilance that needs to exist. Uh, you know, I, I spend a lot of time auditing the data we have and ensuring that we're weighing it correctly and not introducing bias. And when we do analysis, even within the data we have collected, I'm, I'm constantly checking my assumptions and saying like, hey, we, you know, we separate the data by male and female. Did we need to do that? Um, or did we introduce a bias in just how we set up this data set, the data analysis that we were doing? And what's interesting is it does uh, require a lot of self-regulating. There isn't really a, a person out there that's going to say like, hey, were you ethical in what you did? Or did you make sure that you weighed your data? Um, I, I barely have anyone above me that understands the technicality of what I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so then it becomes this sort of self, you know, regulation that needs to exist where you are considering the things that you're bringing to the table. Um, And then that really does call into question things where like, how many of the engineers at your corporation are white and male and do they think about those things? Or do you have a level of diversity in your engineers and in the way that your people work? Because, you know, we don't have these data ethics regulations that exist we are are all self doing it. And then if we're not going to create these regulations, you know, are you as a company being responsible and who you hire to allow the people to be around a table to actually discuss these things to then make those decisions? Well, along those lines, I would say that your company is being very responsible in hiring you to oversee this team. It's such an important topic as you've both said it's you know the future of data and how we use data and how we set up algorithms and how we uh you know look at these algorithms and these machines to make decisions to point us in the right direction there's so much room for error and there's so much room for really brilliant things to happen if done well and so uh, I'm grateful to have someone like you at, you know, working at a, an industry leader, setting the pace for how these things are handled. It's brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, you know, I, it, it's interesting to to be called that as an expert because it's like, you know, I, you know, there are jobs out there within Google and all those sort of other big temp companies that have created these these data ethicist jobs. And, you know, we all watch the revolving door that is those jobs, um, recognizing the stress and the sort of unscopable work uh, that exists within these groups. And uh, I, I recognize that I've tried to do my best with it, but I also, you know, am flying off the seat of my pants sometimes and, and wishing there was something out there to, that would be an expert that I could lean towards rather than me, you know, working with the the limited resources I have to, to sort of create some level of, of ethics. Yeah, that brings me to the next question. You know, I'm wondering about 
people, organizations, maybe conferences, professional organizations, or simply others that you collaborate with? And who else is working toward this grand challenge of uh, ethical, ethical data that you have the opportunity to communicate with and learn from and share your work with? Yeah, so um, the the easiest answer I have is the Max Planck Institute. And so um, the the research and the model that we use, that, I, that Body Labs used and that I use at Nike, um, is based out of that group, out of MPI. And they've spent, you know, uh, a, they have a whole department on perceiving systems. And um, they have groups of people that talk about, you know, what is the best way to weigh data? Uh, you know, I do principal component analysis, which is a method of looking at the data and finding all the linear relations that exist across the, the sort of wealth of data. And there's a question of recognizing how much you weigh certain principal components and, and looking at how that reflects the population. And so I read papers like that, and some of the papers aren't have nothing to do with bodies. They're just about, you know, weighing data uh, and trying to then take that and apply it to the work I do. Uh, but like finding a one for one is probably not just not going to happen because data is so expansive and so, you know, variable that you're not going to find like, what is the ethics of body data analysis uh, across, you know, a million person data set you know that's just no one's gonna write that paper <laughs> I, I could write that you paper could. but nike's <laughs> nike's not gonna let me so oh, yeah. <laughs> you know we have trade secrets and so uh, there's this sort of balance of you know how do we start building standards and, and existing in, in a way that is ethical but also balancing things like trade secrets and, and how do we you know cr create that in, in a world where we're also trying to make money and and stay ahead of the the industry. Yes. Okay. So where do you recommend if others are listening and they're interested in this topic, where would people go to stay current on what's happening in this this field? The the sort of two conferences that like I follow and, and go to are SIGGRAPH and CVPR. Uh, and so that's kind of where I feel like I'm going back to school when I <laughs> when I exist uh, outside of you know working every day. Uh, and so CVPR is really sort of about just the future of computer vision. And they do have talks there about ethics and what does it look like? They, you know, probably you, you've seen some of their talks, you know, circulate the media when, you know, synthetic data came about and the sort of deep fakes uh, trends started. Uh, there was CVPR was where people were talking about the problems and, and the sort of what do we do about it? Um, and SIGGRAPH is the same thing. Uh, they're more focused towards machine learning and, and more about all the different sort of new developments and modeling. And so they also sort of handle that on a different lens, but also have the latest tech when it comes to this kind of work um, and, and what to do and how to use it and inherently sometimes the ethics of it. So what's the greatest challenge you faced in your work and how did you overcome it? For, for me, you know, the answer is more about my my career path you know it's always been an interesting uh decision when or how to go to the next thing uh you know every job i've i've left has sort of had its own narration and the hardest thing was like when to leave 
Um, you know, I, I recognize a fine balance of investing in a place and seeing things through and when things get tough to persevere in order to like, you know, see something through. And then the other side of the coin of recognizing like you're not going to be the one person that solves everything and you need to accept that if this isn't working, uh, it's not going to work because you're not fully in control. Uh, and, you know, each time I've done that at a job, it's been a, a different narration, right? At Souls, I, I left because we had issues with our business and how we were operating and selling uh, was not reflective of what we had set our goals to do. And so I, I didn't have any control of how we sold our product or, you know, how our sales team ran. Uh, I, I just made a really good product. Um, and with Body Labs, we were acquired up with Amazon. And when I was at Amazon, I was there for about two years. There was a, you know, a, a bigger question for me about, you know, what am I doing here? You know, Amazon bought us with the vision of what they wanted us to build for them. And, you know, I, I built one of them and was starting to still question, you know, the, the ethics of my own existential desire to work whether or not I wanted to at Amazon. Uh, but then it was really then, you know, what am I going to do next? And how am I going to get after that? And is the next place going to be a small company or is it going to be a big company? And, you know, thankfully, you know, Nike was an opportunity that kind of walked up on my door and I really ran for it and grabbed it. And it was really great. And I'm super happy to be here. Uh, but even now, you know, I think about, you know, I'm solving this problem right now. And at a certain point, I have to accept whether or not it's going to be something that's going to continue to be solved or, you know, this is a problem that might not happen at either the pace that I want it to be or the pace, you know, or, or, or at any pace. And so then do I find the next job or do I find the next problem to solve? And then when, when does that happen? Uh, and I'm still figuring that out. I think it's kind of this, this continuation of career growth and career path. And it's, it's a balance that I think about most careers and, and how to go to the next one. Uh, I had a mentor way back when said part of the job that you currently have is looking for the next job. And what he really meant to say is, you know, uh, lifelong learning, continuous development, even if you're going to stay right here and keep the same title you can change that job to be your next job, right? Even in yeah. house. I thought that was very wise. Absolutely. And, and that's what, you know, uh, what's unique about Nike for me is that I, I, I feel like I've built my career almost to, to be at Nike, you know, like I started in foot, you know, biomechanics and was working on insoles and 3d printing, uh, and then made my way to bodies. And, uh, now I'm at Nike. And so, you know, they're, you know, the people trying to build performance product for feet and clothing. Uh, and so I have a lot of opportunities within Nike, not to just work on bodies, but to, to work on shoes, to work on 3D printing. Uh, and so there are kind of these pockets where I can really reframe my job to, to be able to do those things. The, the challenge I deal with is also the idea of leaving things at a place that can exist without me. Um, I, you know, not to toot my own horn, but like, you know, if you're really putting a lot of effort into a, a field or a work, there's going to be a U-shaped hole that exists because uh, you're putting a lot of effort into it. And so the question is, is like in leaving a place, um, have you created the right mechanisms that the U-shaped hole can get filled? Uh, and that's 
that's another job, uh, you know, on top of solving the problem and finding your next job, it's like handing off your job or the problem that you're trying to solve or the product you're creating uh, to be set up for success without you. Uh, and, you know, all three of those things take up, you know, a lot of your brain space as you sort of think about your career and think about, you know, what you're going to do next. I don't think that I've heard it put quite that way, the U-shaped hole, right? I, I, yeah. It's an amazing, another good visual. Thank you. You're good at the visualization stuff, right? Try, That's I your try. job. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I wish I would have known that for my very, very first jobs, right? because what I was doing was exactly that. Um, someone said something, that a program that I had created, this was a long time ago. Well, it's a cult of personality, Tracy. <laughs> And as soon as you leave, it's going to collapse. And they were right because I had created mm -hmm. a U-shaped, a Tracy-shaped hole. <laughs> and I had no concept of how to leave behind something that could carry forth without me, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, that's brilliant. I, um, we, one of the things that we asked you to do was to also think about what do you wish you knew when you were a sophomore? So you have this great vision now of what to do and how to carry it forward, but it's sometimes hard to rewind, right? So we ask about the sophomore level because that's about when people decide what their major is. And you said you were an independent major. Yeah. Take it. So, um, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll take it really detailed. Uh, and my advice is less about now and more about, you know, what I just needed to tell myself as a sophomore. <laughs> Uh, so I, I was an independent major in two parts. One, you know, I took the advantage of the independent major because I saw a path of, you know, shortcutting getting a master's degree. I, you know, was aware that taking all the biomechanics courses I wanted to take would require me to not only get an MAE degree, but then go past that and get a master's in biomechanics or get a PhD uh, and, you know, Cornell was pretty hard. And so I was like, I, I don't need to do that more. I, I want to get what I need and go work. Uh, and so part of it was that. And two, you know, I actually struggled my first two years. I, you know, uh, had to withdraw from a class. I didn't have the best GPA. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, how do I, how do I get a hold of myself and figure this out? Uh, and part of it was, was going through the independent major route. The, the thing I sort of wish, you know, I told myself uh, or really could believe is is to just remember that, like, you're at an elite university uh, and, you know, it, it it is hard to consistently keep remembering that, you know, especially you're still at one of the top schools in the world uh, and there's there's a bubble that gets created as a, you know, as a person in this world that like you are not enough or that, you know, you're not, you're not at the mean or you're not, you know, a deviation above the mean. And there's just sort of self-reflection or evaluation. Um, and what I wish I was told was like, regardless of where you are at Cornell, there's a world out there um, that isn't an elite school. Uh, the reality is like, you're going to still be one of the smartest people in the room for the rest of your life. <laughs> Uh, and I, you know, it was kind of a, a hit in the face, you know, entering the industry and mm. uh, recognizing that the hard work that I put into Cornell uh, is paying off uh, five some, you know, like, uh, till this day, I would, I will say Cornell was the most stressful time in my life. Um, and, you know, 
that being said, it's it's like the rest of my life has kind of been like, well, you know, I can handle this. Uh, and, you know, my job is to try to push people to do more, uh, which, you know, I, you know, thought I didn't do enough. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the sort of bubble pop is, is really recognizing, hey, you might be struggling right now. And this might be really, really freaking hard. But the reality is, like, you're still one of the top people, you know, at this school in, in the world. And you're, you're going to make it, you know, and to have confidence in that so that you can have a sense of relief from the minutia of, oh, my God, I'm a deviation below the mean. I'm never going to make it in life. Or I got, you know, I used to catastrophize that I was going to drop out of school and work at McDonald's. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But for me, that was like my personal like failure nightmare. Um, and so I, you know, wish I could have this sort of like reality check uh, and this reminder so that I could, you know, continue to focus on my academics, but not have that immense pressure to succeed. I think that's such an important message. Uh we happen to be recording this during finals have just concluded <laughs> and uh, we're feeling the, the, the whole campus is feeling a little bit of relief today, I think, um, as we look at graduation. So that's really wonderful. So Nathan, if you were not doing this work right now, what would you be doing and which is closest to what you dreamed of when you were a child? I actually always dreamed of being a chef uh, growing up, ironically. Uh, my uncle uh, owned a restaurant and I sort of took after him and I was always cooking in my house with my mom and my sisters and uh, really had a knack for it and thought, you know, this is something I can do. I'm really good at it and I want to do it. Uh, but my parents were very quick to deny me that <laughs> ability. Uh, they, you know, I'm, I'm a, a son of immigrants and they were like, we didn't, you know, come across the globe for you to uh, cook food. Uh, and so they kind of pushed me to to pursue something else I was passionate about. And, you know, I was passionate about engineering and went through Cornell and, you know, did this. And uh, I, I recognize the importance of that now and that I can cook and also not have to deal with the stress and uh, financial instability that being a chef could be. Uh, and so I recognize that like I probably could have also done a really great job as a chef because of the determination and work and drive that I have. Uh, but I'm also aware, you know, the restaurant industry is pretty rough uh, and I'm glad I, I chose engineering. <laughs> um, but, you know, career wise, you know, when I was at, you know, Cornell, I did envision wanting to work at Nike one day. I, I kind of set it as a goal knowing, you know, not knowing how I was going to get there. I, I was like, I, you know, I don't think Nike even hires biomechanical engineers. I think shoe designers are, you know, shoe people that learn how to draw things or, you know, cobblers. Uh, but I kind of was like, well, I'll keep that in mind, you know, but maybe one day somehow I'll figure out how to get there. And and I did. And so here I am uh, working at the place I had hoped I would work at. It's amazing when that works out. Yeah. I was just thinking you could have your team members answer yes, chef, really loud when they agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> that might bring your worlds together. <laughs> yeah, well, it was interesting during the, the pandemic. Uh, I, I had a, a, a group of friends that we like created, you know, a COVID pod with, and it was six of us. And um, I grew up uh, working in Bodega in, in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And so I was a Bodega kid and uh, 
you know, made sandwiches and, you know, did all this other stuff. And uh, when we were in the pandemic, people were like, hey, can you cook us breakfast sandwiches? Like, let's just like do this, you know, pseudo diner uh, thing. And it was like really fun. I was just like, you know, cooking for my friends, but like took their orders and made paper sheets and then, you know, made them bacon, egg and cheeses. Uh, and so that was really fun. Uh, you know, finding ways to do that has been uh, a good, you know, passion and hobby of mine. I've actually talked to my friends about doing like a chef's table where I would do a tasting menu and give people a, a five course meal and they just pay for the cost of it and I'd have fun cooking. Uh, and so, yeah, there's definitely ways to take your passion that might not have turned into a career and then finding ways to access it. You know, even today, I struggle to design sometimes because I'm busy doing machine learning work and doing all this other stuff and I wanted to be a designer. Um, and so my partner's on a rugby team and so I volunteered to redesign their jerseys. Uh, you know, I've never designed a jersey, but it's still going to use all the design methods that I know. You know, I'm still going to make a, a, a morphological chart of different aspects I want to like create or what problems exist with their color scheme and then design something. Uh, and so there's definitely ways outside of just your career to pursue those things. Uh, it's just figuring out how and, and how much work you want to put into it. Well, this last question we always ask of everybody, but I think you've already kind of tapped into part of it. We like to check in with people about how they relax, have fun, or re-energize. So we kind of know some of yours already, but anything you want to yeah. add to the list? Yeah, definitely cooking is a really important way that I relax. Um uh, you know, after gaining what I will also, you know, my Cornell weight back uh, through the pandemic, uh, I got into working out uh, a lot. And so um, I really tried to create a, a way where I could create a habit of working out to let steam out. And, you know, I work out three days a week and it's been really important for me to relax. Uh, I've unlocked the uh, benefit of a bath. Uh, I did not know how to take a relaxing bath for a very long time. And, and now I, I know what that is and it's really great. And so yeah, uh, baths, exercise and cooking. <laughs> that is an excellent one to add to the list. Yeah. <laughs> that and a dry sauna, uh, which I don't own, but when I, when I have the ability to get into a dry sauna, uh, it's, it's really nice yeah. to, to just sweat it out. Well, thank you so much for this enjoyable conversation. This has been quite eye-opening. Uh, we appreciate so much your reassuring words to folks as they are working through their undergraduate experience that it's, it's going to be okay. You're going to get there. And then all of your insights about how all these technical worlds and creative worlds that you have come together in your career. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, please follow, rate, and review on your favorite platform. Join us for the next episode where we will be celebrating excellence and innovation among engineers whose impact contributes to a healthier, more equitable, and more sustainable world.